Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities in one of the most militarized, controlled, and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. This first episode will focus on several civil responses in terms of water, supplies, and search and rescue needs. Witnesses of the border brutalities, people living in the borderlands have been mobilized since the end of the 70s. For the past 40 years, many actors come to the direct aid of people who attempt to cross this border. From demonstration or water and deposit in the desert, to rescue operation and links with the families searching for a missing loved one, different communities and groups are fighting against the border regime. Let's begin with Isabel Garcia from La Coalición de Derechos Humanos, the Human Rights Coalition, a Tucson-based grassroots organization which promotes respect for human rights since the 70s. This organization is at the origin of many mobilization in the region. Isabel Garcia, I'm the daughter of Rodolfo Garcia and Carmen Gámez, Los Tonao Gámez, and um, I'm a lawyer. I'm a fourth-generation Tucsonan. Uh, fifth generation. Um, and so we started uh, doing immigrant rights work in 1976, if you can believe it. Uh, so we've been here for a very long time. Eventually we formed um, Coalición de Derechos Humanos because we, in the mid early 90s, we began to, to see that it really wasn't, uh, civil rights w framework was really not sufficient to advocate on behalf of migrant rights. We had to talk about human rights. And now it's exploded, right? But back then, it was really hard to talk. Uh, and even now, people don't want to evaluate things under a human rights framework, right, and analysis. But So that's when we formed Derechos Humanos. We decided we wanted to, to really focus in and... Uh, So we've, uh, we very intentionally uh, wanted to uh, uh, team up with our allies because we're community people and we know that all of our issues are together. So at that time, people were still very siloed work. Um, and so we wanted to show our labor friends that immigrant rights were labor rights. They were environmental rights economic rights, women's rights, transgender rights, I mean, and we grew a community here in Tucson. Um, we have a lot of organizations as a result of that, right? Uh, in Streamline Coalition, um, uh, of course, uh, No More Deaths, um, the Border Patrol Victims Network, every one of these issues we took on as Derechos Humanos and we we branched out. And of course, the, the most devastating one was the, the death on the borders. And so uh, in the 90s, we were still battling a lot of Border Patrol brutality. We brought national attention to the Border Patrol brutality. And then, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, we saw what was going on. That's the problem, is that everything that people now know in the movement, we knew then but nobody would pay attention to us, right? Uh, when we talked about militarization of the border, we actually got people who wanted to spit at us and say, you know, I've been in a war zone, ma'am, and you have no idea, and you know, so we were attacked 
viciously for using that word. And so uh, eventually people came to us about that were crossing and were not being found that didn't show up. In the 90s, we began to get uh, a lot of calls uh, from people whose uh, relative had crossed and that sort of thing. And so we began looking into it and um, began agitating, began having uh, protests and such at the, at, even at El Tiradito, you know, and vigils calling attention to the border deaths. Um, at that time, the Border Patrol did everything in their power not to acknowledge the, the problem, nor document it, right? We were beginning to document, and when the, you know, then I fast forward, when the GAO did their study in 2006, when we had a major, we had a major forum here, a town hall on all these issues, but uh, at that same time, the GAO, the General Accounting Office, issued a report on the Border Patrol saying that everything we had said all these years were true. I mean, they didn't say those same spokeswoman, oh, Virginia, what was her name? She would always say we were lying. You know they would get people that were sick and dump them in front of the hospital. They would put them outside of their jurisdiction. Anything not to count people. They certainly didn't track where they even found a person, you know, back then. So the GAO just destroyed the, you know, I mean, they did a scathing report. It was still very... Um, you know, doesn't didn't take on the harsh, uh, the real issues uh, underlying all of them, but at least made all of those uh, those criticisms. And of course, they passed in two thousand and seven a law that required them to do many of these things that now the Border Patrol touts. They do dog and pony shows. You might have seen one and tell you, look at this is what we do and all. Um, and that was only because they were forced to. They were forced to in 2007. So, so we began agitating. At that time, we also were, you know, we knew we were indigenous people and we had indigenous rights all along the border. So we were two organizations, La Coalición de Derechos Humanos slash Alianza Indígena Sin Fronteras. And we had one director, Jose Matus. And in, eventually they sepa we separated, of course, because that's pretty huge, the, just the indigenous issue, right? And, and I continue to be a member of that. And recently we got a really great grant uh, because the indigenous issues are now, you know, pretty um, on point. So, that. so we began to really agitate about the border and the brutality of the border um, in every space that we could possibly do it. We formed a coalition to bring down the wall. That's when we brought the environmental uh, organizations in, all the indigenous organizations and the human rights and organizations. And we had a, a major conference in, I think, March or April of 2005 here in Tucson. And we brought people across the country. Uh, we actually had a, the major summit on the brutality of the border was in, December of 2000. The issue of the death, you know, uh, continued. Um, it's, it's an issue that just, it really bogs my mind that, that we could have. I mean, I know now with COVID, the numbers just overwhelm you and they numb you. But back in the day to say, you know, 
252 people died in one year, just right here in this Arizona border. People that didn't have to die. I mean, that's the key thing, that you didn't have to die, right? So um, it's been one of those issues that is really, really difficult. I thought maybe we would get real attention on the border and and to really dive into the issues like streamline and all of it uh, when the children were separated. And even that didn't do it. I mean, it did do it for a lot of people. I do have to say that we're just like, oh my God, we are now doing the worst. Because I thought that the very worst really was to disappear people, you know, to make people go out in the desert and then disappear them. I thought there's no bigger crime than that, that their family members will never find out what happened. You know, when we started the vigil in June of 2000, every Thursday we went to El Tiradito for 17 years, you know, saying, you know, we have to be here till people stop dying. And of course it became policy. I mean, it became policy. Uh, as Raquel Pruvio Goldsmith says, our border policies are policies of death, com completely, right? Whether it's a social death, uh, uh, the physical death, or the worst, the ambiguous death, you know, the really unknown one that, uh, that by now it has to be millions of people who wonder what happened to fulano de tal, you know? I mean, imagine you multiply one person by how many people that love you and miss you and, and such, right? Um, I always thought that was the worst crime that we could commit, but, you know. In the beginnings of the 2000s, Death and disappearances were rising in the borderlands. Based on the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner statistics of where the bodies of people who tried to cross were found, a group of people decided to put water station in the desert, trying to prevent death. This organization, Humane Borders, placed 48 water stations in the borderlands. Let's listen to Rebecca Fuller, administrator of Humane Borders. The Humane Borders actually emerged from out of the sanctuary movement, the 1980s sanctuary movement, all the different folks that were involved with that. And the, the sanctuary movement was about providing sanctuary for people who were fleeing the dirty wars and in Central America, and they were being deported back to their deaths. And so the sanctuary um, movement um, arose to, you know, to, pro to provide shelter for them. And like 20 years after the, pa after the fact, Um, folks around here, religious leaders, cons you know, concerned community, community leaders were noticing that people were crossing the border and a lot of people were, were a, lot, a lot more crossings than people were dying. And so in 2000, these folks got together and decided that we should put water in the de that they should put water in the desert. And at the time that they thought it was going to be a temporary solution, right? That once people found out about that there were so many people dying in the desert, we were not going to allow this to happen anymore. You know, public policies would be passed and, you know, things would change. And then 20 years later, you know, it's just gotten worse. The typical water run. Um, we have 300, we have a, we have a huge gallon, um, a 325 gallon water container on the back of our truck. So we make sure that that is full. We have a, it's a, um, 
a fuel pump generator that you know starts up the pump that pushes the water out uh, so that we make sure that there's gas in the pump and that our um, that our trucks are gassed up and ready to go um, we generally have at least two volunteers sometimes four um, and then we uh, travel out we have two different locations actually three different locations that we take our trips out from one is Tucson um, and the other is Ajo and the other is Phoenix. And, um, and so we have about, at this point, 48 different water stations that we maintain within, within like a 180 mile circumference. So when we get to the water stations, we check to see how much water has been used. Um, we also te uh, test for um, water particulates. And if the water particulates are high or if we note that there's algae, or if the water smells a little funny, we'll you know we'll change out the water. But um, yeah, we so we note how much water has been used, um, change out the water. Sometimes we find that our water stations have been vandalized, which happens um, on a fairly consistent basis, unfortunately. Um, and then in the event that that happens, then we alert you know the law, um, the the different law enforcement depending on the county that we're in. Most of our volunteers come in from out of state and um, which is really an amazing thing because then then you know and we've gotten volunteers from everywhere except for Hawaii all of the different states and and they'll all and, and the volunteers will take stories back to their communities and raise awareness so um, yeah, but hundreds of volunteers in a given year. And then we have like a steady, we have like a core of, you know, like veteran volunteers, regular volunteers that we can depend on. Humane Borders Water Station have been placed in the desert on dirty road, accessible by car. In 2002, a new organization was created the Tucson Samaritans, in order to drop water deeper in the desert. Let's listen to Gelka Thurek, in charge of media and education for the Tucson Samaritans. It really started 41 years ago with John Fife um, and Jim Corbett and a few other people. There was a group of people that came across from El Salvador and uh, they came because their village had been attacked. People had been killed there, the priests and sisters, a lot of the villagers. And uh, they said, We've got, we have to leave. So, and my friend Dora had just graduated from high school and they decided they didn't have any choice. They had to get out. So they headed to, uh, they headed towards the States. And uh, long story short, they were found in the desert in Oregon Pipe National Monument, about a mile from the highway. And at that point, 13 of the group were dead. You know, it was such a tragedy and they were escaping, you know, violence and they should have been able to ask for asylum, you know, when they came across. And uh, so people like John Fife and Jim Corbett said, this, is, this can't keep happening, we have to do something. So they spent the next two years, well, one or two years, uh, putting together the sanctuary movement. And the sanctuary movement started in the United States because of that incident 41 years ago. So that would have been, what, 1981? 1980. 
1981 when they started the organization, I mean the movement. And uh, they all ended up go going to jail, being felons, uh, really getting in a lot of trouble because they believed in protecting people. They, they started the movement and they continued to see problems and people coming across the desert and people starting to die. And they thought that was unacceptable. So they, they came together and thought, we need to start an organization uh, and do something about it. So they started Humane Borders in 2000. And these are the people that put out 55 gallon water drums in the desert. They try to put them close to where there's a recovered human remain uh, that a vehicle could get to so that they could refill the water tanks. And then they put a blue flag above it. So that was in 2000 that that started. And they thought, wow, that's really nice, but we need to find people out in the trails. Where, where are they, you know, not everybody's gonna find this. Let's see where the trails are. So a group started looking for trails and they started that organization called Tucson Samaritans. And that was in 2002. And the very first trip was done by Norma Price, who's still an active Samaritan. She's a retired doctor. And uh, she said, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just going out looking for people. In those days, they used to find big groups of people. Uh, but they were also finding a lot of trails that people were using. And they started putting water out on those trails and putting it on GPS locations. And now they're now, there's close to, I think, around 3,000 miles on the GPS. Okay, well, we do a lot of different things. Uh, education and media. <laughs> we also go out on trails and we leave a lot of water. Most people carry anywhere from one to four gallons of water usually, some more, um, and uh, carry it anywhere from a few yards to uh, seven miles. Uh, out on a really rough trails. This is where the people actually walk. It's not like these beautiful trails that you find in national parks and in the mountains. These are, it's rough terrain through washes and a lot of, we call them arroyos and over a lot of rocky areas. And, uh, and there's a lot of um, dangers involved. Um, I mean, I don't consider them really dangerous. You could fall on the rocks easily, I've done that. You could get stung by wasps, bees, uh, scorpions. Usually during the day, you don't see black widows. Usually you don't see scorpions during the day either, but you could put your hand under a rock and get stung by a scorpion. Tarantulas are pretty tame. They only come out at night. Uh, then just about everything <laughs> in the desert seems to have a thorn. Um, it, no matter how pretty it is, it'll be covered in thorns. Even if it's a tree, it'll be covered in thorns. So that's a danger, you usually come back. We recommend wearing long sleeves and long pants because of that. And I like to wear t-shirts and I end up with my arms usually pretty bloody by the time I get back to the vehicle. Um, but it's okay. It's, I always like tell people, like my daughter who complained because it was, <laughs> She goes, Mom, you didn't tell me it was going to be this hard and this long. And I said, well, nobody told the migrant that either. I said, but look at it this way. You're going home for a hot meal and a shower tonight. They're going to keep walking. 
So you could go out there and hike and get an idea of what they go through, but you really don't understand what these people are going through. And one of the biggest reasons why we don't understand is because we don't have fear sitting on our shoulders. But uh, so that's the main thing we do is go out, put out water. We also have trips where we call them patrolling, where we go look for people. So we might just drive up and down dirt roads looking for people. And I found close to 60 people doing that, just doing that. Um, and usually you're not gonna see somebody unless they need help, but they can't ask for help if you're not driving up that road with your sign on the door with a white cross on it um, so that they, they could identify it as a safe or hopefully a safe vehicle. Had the situation for people who tried to cross in the borderlands got worse and worse, in 2004, a coalition of activists set up No More Death to operate on a daily basis in the desert of Sonora. Let's listen to Parker Digan, No More Death Abuses Documentation Coordinator. No More Death was founded in 2004. Um, it was founded initially as sort of a coalition of um, different migrant justice um, activists in Southern Arizona um, directly in response to an increase in migrant deaths that we were seeing um, in the desert here. Um, it was formed in response to the policy of prevention through deterrence, um, which was implemented in 1994, but kind of slowly built up the surveillance and um, militarization of, of uh, like urban crossing areas where people had historically crossed back and forth. Um, So as predicted in the original plan, it kind of served to push, you know, people who had traditionally gone pretty easily back and forth in El Paso and San Diego um, into southern Arizona. And then um, with the implementation of the wall and surveillance infrastructure in Nogales, um, the major crossing here in Arizona, we see people being pushed out into really remote areas of the desert. Um, and checkpoints go up, so you see people crossing, um, having longer and longer journeys. Um, And as a direct result of that, people just started seeing in our backyards um, just more and more remains being recovered, um, people in need of serious help and medical attention um, in Southern Arizona. And so a bunch of different organizations were formed and No More Deaths was one of the organizations that came out of the community response to that crisis. Um, and so, yeah, we've um, been around ever since and have really grown and grown. So we have a lot of different projects under the No More Deaths umbrella now. Um, kind of the, the core of the work, the beginning of the work is um, really just driving around in like remote um, desert areas, um, looking for people who need help um, with water and food and often, you know, socks, first aid supplies, anything like that, um, calling for emergency assistance if needed. Um, and we've also started hiking out uh, water and food and leaving them on migrant trails. Um, No More Death also operates a humanitarian aid camp in Aravaca, Arizona, about 14 miles north of the border, um, which is just a place where people can find a respite um, who've been walking for days through the desert. Um, we also, of course, have food, water, um, cots where people can rest, um, and just yeah, provide a space of, of the resources people need and the respite that they need. Um, And yeah, so and we've grown to operate a volunteer program. People come and help us put out water in the desert. Um, yeah, so that's, that's our desert aid program. We also do search and rescue. Um, so we, we run a hotline now where people who can call and basically report their loved ones who have gone missing while crossing the border. Um, 
and we'll help them try and, and find that loved one, whether it means calling consulates, calling to try and see if they're already in custody, um, or if we do have locational information and can do a search and rescue operation, um, we'll do that and try and search for people who are lost. Um, I worked with the abuse documentation team that I mentioned, um, which um, we've had an abuse documentation project for many years. I think our first report was maybe in 2011, um, and our, our most recent project that I was involved in was the Disappeared Report series, um, which is really trying to document um, the things that we witnessed firsthand um, in remote areas of the desert, um, and really calling attention to um, both the broader sort of strategy, prevention through deterrence, that we believe is responsible for this crisis of death and disappearance, um, as well as the ways that the, the logic of deterrence is carried out by agents on the ground um, who, who take action that um, increase the risk of death and disappearance um, for people crossing the border. And our most recent report was Left to Die um, that was released February of this year. Yeah, well, time flies. <laughs> um, and um, we also operate a legal clinic. We have, we have a lot of projects now under the New Murdoch umbrella. So we have Keep Tucson Together as a legal clinic here in town that provides free legal representation to people um, in deportation proceedings, as well as people who are um, applying for DACA when, when we were able to do that, um, applying for asylum, things like that. Um, and we do some work in northern Mexico, some collaborative work with shelters there for people who have, uh, mostly folks who have traveled through Mexico from Central America, um, provide medical care, food, water, basic harm reduction work there. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, there's, we also operate in the shelter in Nogales, um, um, doing some assistance to people who have been deported. Um, so folks who are deported often don't have any resources. They, they don't have their money, their ID, whatever they crossed with, so they need a lot of help um, if they're trying to get back home um, and, or making phone calls to their family to let them know what happened, so things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I would, I think it's almost all the calls from what I understand are, are regarding someone who went missing, crossing the border. Um, so they're from a family member usually. Um, but they could be from anywhere on the border. Sometimes they're calling from someone who crossed the border in, in Texas and um, or California or New Mexico, of course. Um, and, but I, I think it can vary a lot whether, you know, we, we consider a search and rescue case, um, one in which there's been contact within the last three days, um, and that person at that time was alive and in the desert in need of help. So there's also recovery calls is the other thing. So someone is known to have passed away, um, but the family member doesn't know what happened to their body. Um, so we receive those calls as well. No more death volunteers have been sued for their action on the field. Parker Degan explains. I guess I'm starting with the more recent court cases, and there are older ones from, from years ago. Um, so it's not really a new pattern, but more recently, um, Scott Warren was um, arrested for providing humanitarian aid in Ajo, Arizona, which is an area we work in that's kind of in the western part of the state. Um, and he was providing humanitarian aid at a space that we use there that we share with a few different other humanitarian aid organizations, um, two men who um, were from Central America and had been crossing through the desert and had made it to Ajo, which is about 40 miles north of the border. 
um, and people in that area are usually traveling um, about another 40 miles or so to get past a checkpoint that's nearly 100 miles north of the border. Um, so it's an extremely long journey in that area and an extremely remote um, and treacherous desert. Um, yeah, so these people had made it to Ajo. Um, Scott was at this humanitarian aid space um, and had, you know, we'd offered them food, water, a space to rest. Um, those are the things that we offer. Um, and uh, two border patrol agents who had been surveilling the space um, came in and arrested um, Scott and those two men. Um, two men were deported. Um, and Scott was charged with uh, felony harboring charges. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a court battle that we fought for several years. He went through trial once and it was a hung jury. They couldn't agree. Um, and then we went through the trial again and he was acquitted by the jury. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, you know, that felt great in the end, but of course it was many years of, of uh, an immense amount of work from many volunteers to support that legal um, campaign, as well as, you know, stress and trauma for Scott, um, and as well as, of course, trauma for those two men um, who traveled that far and were deported. Um, and uh, the, other, the other sort of piece of that is that his arrest came just a few hours after we released a report against Border Patrol. It was a report documenting their destruction of humanitarian aid supplies. Um, we released a video of Border Patrol agents destroying um, water bottles that went pretty viral that morning. And it was about six hours after that that the agents um, were surveilling the space that was known to be associated with no more deaths. And they saw Scott there with the two men and came in and arrested them um, and charged him with harboring. Um, and so around that same time, um, nine volunteers, including Scott, so Scott was also facing these other charges, um, and including myself as one of the other volunteers, were all facing misdemeanor charges. Um, and those charges were related to our humanitarian aid work on Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge, um, which is a huge wildlife refuge. Um, uh, near Ajo, Arizona, in the western part of the desert. Um, it's an extremely deadly area. It's extremely remote. It's a wilderness area um, with no, no public roads for most of it. Um, and it's an, it's an area where our volunteers find easily the highest number of remains that we, that we find in this desert. Um, every time volunteers go out there, um, sometimes multiple remains will be recovered in a day. Um, so it's just... Um, it, it's just, yeah, it, it's such a deadly area. Um, extremely hot, of course, temperatures reaching up to 120 uh, degrees. And um, because it's a wilderness area, um, we're not able to drive, but there are administrative roads and Border Patrol does drive in that area every single day. So I think a lot of people think wilderness and they, they think of something that's very untouched, but this is an area where Border Patrol is zipping around on ATVs, they're flying helicopters, they're flying drones. Um, and like there's public access roads that are used by park employees and they can even grant permission to hunters sometimes. Um, but No More Deaths has, has tried to ask for permission to use these administrative access roads for search and rescue or for bringing in humanitarian aid supplies and we've been consistently denied. Um, and so on a couple occasions, um, volunteers have, have used those roads um, to bring in humanitarian aid supplies um, and hike in water. Um, and then in my case, responding to a search and rescue call for three people who were missing on the refuge. 
Um, we went in to search for them, and this is after family members had tried reaching out to Border Patrol as well as local sheriffs. Um, and in both cases, volunteers were stopped and then eventually charged um, with these misdemeanors that were related. It was abandonment of property, which is related to the humanitarian aid supplies that we leave, um, as well as uh, driving on the road without permission. And the other piece of this is actually <laughs> before these charges came, um, so you do have to get an access permit to go onto this land and they, they update their permit every year. And, and just before these arrests happened, they had updated their permit and added language in saying, um, you will not leave water, food, medical supplies, socks, like just listing all of the supplies that, um, that we would leave for people who were crossing. Um, so it definitely felt like there was a very targeted effort to keep people off of the range, um, but because the need there was so high, we continued to, to work there and provide um, humanitarian aid. And then, and then those charges happened. Um, so what happened with that, um, there are a couple of different like groups of, so there were like three cases within that. Um, in my case, um, they dropped the charges, they dropped the criminal charges um, down to an infraction. And um, another group of volunteers, as well as Scott, they, they went through trial and they were found guilty initially. Um, and there was an appeal and we won on the appeal. Um, so those, those charges were overturned on the appeal um, on the basis of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, saying that all these volunteers were acting on their sincerely held um, religious, spiritual, moral beliefs um, in providing care in that area. Um, yeah, so, so in the end, nobody was convicted of these charges. Besides organizations based in Tucson and more broadly in Arizona, you have also several groups of people coming from California every weekend, trying to find people lost in the desert. Contacted by family and relatives of people who cross the U.S.-Mexico border, those groups, with information shared by the relatives, look for the missing people. There are several search and rescue groups like this. The Aguilas del Desierto, the Armadillos, Gerardo Campos, of a search and rescue group called Parallelo 31, explain how they intervene in the desert. My name is Gerardo Campos. I am originally a migrant that came from Mexico in 1984. And through the years, I learned uh, about the border, about the uh, migrants coming across the border, you know, and uh, about uh, eight years I joined a group of uh, a humanitarian group. Been doing this for about eight years. Now I'm uh, feeling the need to expand this humanitarian work. You know, I decided to put a team together and expand. So we formed a group along with uh, some of my friends that is called Parallelo 31 or Latitude 31. You know, uh, which is a zone, uh, that, that imaginary lane and the parallelo or latitude 31 where crosses the Arizona desert and uh, somehow it's kind of a the Bermuda Triangle of the desert because there's a lot of people that has uh, uh, been missing in that area. Uh, there's a lot of migrants that are not recovered and they're still laying down in that parallel 31 or latitude 31. That's why we call our group, you know, a parallel 31 or latitude 31 to honor those those people that are uh, that are still laying down there, people that is has died in that area. 
you know, based on our experience of myself and uh, many other friends, which they've been doing on this humanitarian work for about uh, 10, 15 years. Myself, I've been on for eight years, like I said it, uh, forming this group. Uh, now there's, uh, there's a group of about 20 volunteers and growing. You know, we formed this group about a year ago, you know, and with all of our experience, we were been able to recover uh, some migrants that uh, uh, they were reported in that area or in, actually in all the area of uh, the from east, east of the desert, Arizona desert, from Tucson to all the way to the borderline with California. You know, in the process, we also find people that is alive and we try to, you know, keep them alive. We are a non-profit organization, even though uh, we still don't have our permit, which is the 501c3, we still uh, don't, we don't feel like we need to stop until we get the permit, you know, to work as a non-profit organization. So pretty much uh, we put, uh, all of our expenses are paid by ourselves. Because we need that, we need uh, we we know that we need to to keep on an, going. We cannot ignore what's happening at the borderline, you know. So speaking in behalf of my friends, you know, um, they all have good hearts, you know, and they agree that we should never stop doing this humanitarian work. Yeah, we we have um, uh, we have our Facebook, which is called Parallelo Thirty One, Parallelo Latitude Thirty One. And through that system, you know, a lot of people from our country south of this border, like, you know, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico, they already know us. We have a lot of followers. So they report to us about their loved ones that are missing in the process of coming across the border. Many times they do give us uh, latitude and longitude or coordinates to try to find them, or they may name some uh, hills, some mountains, you know, some landmarks where they are left behind. And is there where we all of us get together and make a plan and at least use one of the weekends out of every month, you know, and try to go and find that people, you know, try to locate them. Been, my group has been uh, together for about a year, mm-hmm. right? So there was like 20-some that we started the group, but many of them, they went in different directions. So it's been, like, for example, uh, last month, uh, a family from Mexico called us. They came from the middle part of Mexico to the borderline over here with Tijuana. And they told us, you know, uh, we found your phone on, on, on the internet. Okay, this missing person, he's been missing for 15 days. And he was left behind by a girl. So this guy and a girl were together. And they were in trouble. But the girl was able to walk away. And that, that guy was left behind. The family came to the borderline for help. So they called the Mexican government and they couldn't help them. Then they called the American government, they couldn't help them. Help them. They called Border Patrol, they called everywhere. So they get in touch with us. And you ask me how many of we 
of my volunteers go and look for someone. But these times I felt the need to help this family. Just three of us went into the mountains of the borderline between Mexico and TJ. And just three of us, it was a pretty hard uh, search because there were, it was dangerous, you're right? But we, fortunately, between this unfortunately thing, we found the body. So each time when we find, or when we go like two, three, four of us, and there's time like this next weekend uh, that it's going to be like 20 of us going in. So we, we're migrants, you know, we pretty much, most of us came through the border in the same way. You know, some of uh, our volunteers, they have lost the people in the process, you know, in the process of coming across the, the, the borderline. So pretty much we all understand what these people goes through and we don't want them to suffer or we want them, you know, to relieve that pain as much as we can help them out. This fourth episode showed us the multiple ways of action in the Sonora Desert regarding people who try to cross without authorization, including missing persons. At the origin and at the heart of these actions, you have relatives who fight daily to find their loved ones. Often with no response from the authorities, they organize themselves. Episode 5 will talk about relative struggle to find the truth and ask for justice. Thank you for following Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities. See you soon, and don't forget, this episode has been mixed by Nicolas Puissant.